My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. In Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, Jose Arcadio Buendia dreams of Macondo, a city of mirrors that reflects the entire world around it. But what if you lived in Beijing? Just after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, and the city you lived in didn't allow for these reflections because it was a bit too busy reflecting a political monotone. What if your identity was something you could only reflect inside yourself? Something that few other people knew about? Well, I met Ian Lee a few weeks ago, before Garcia Marquez's recent death, and I never got the chance to ask her if the title of her new novel, Kinder Than Solitude, reflected any connection to Gabo's masterpiece. But what her novel does have is a murder mystery of a young woman's poisoning used to kickstart an even deeper mystery involving three people over the course of many years. The text is sprinkled with these pithy sayings and these personal allusions that accumulate in the text because, well, unlike Macondo, there isn't any other place for these reflections to go. Yet it was this very tension that actually had me both endorsing and rejecting the idea that region is literature's starting point. I also learned that Ian had a secret life as an accordion player, to which I responded with understandably effusive shock. But I think it goes without saying that if you stick with any good book or any dependable person just long enough, you'll find that reflections shimmer, because time may be the most dependable river twisting through any universe. So if you've got 45 minutes to kill, here is my lively conversation with Ian Lee. Okay, so I'm here once again with Ian Lee, who is most recently the author of Kinder Than Solitude. Ian, how are you doing? Pleasure I, to see you. Thank you so much. It's good to see you, too. Yes, I'm I, well. I, I, we were just discussing how you came out to New York just to see me. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something like that. So uh, let's get into this book. There's quite a lot, but uh, I'll hopefully uh, hit many of the themes. There's this point in the book where Moran, and by the way, if I mangle the pronunciation, please feel free to correct me. I'm one of these idiot Americans who is doing his best to be phonetic. But um, there's this point where Moran says to Joseph, moving on, that's an American thing I don't believe in. And then there's this moment late in the book where one American is utterly devastated by what she learns about one of the characters. I'm trying not to give it away. All of the inferences she made are essentially just thrown back into her face. And I think this novel dramatizes belief culture in very interesting ways. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how is belief formed or reified by a national instinct, whether it is American or Chinese? And how do you think the migratory impulse of moving on causes us to believe in people in very harmful ways? Uh, How does this affect you as a novelist? someone who is asking the reader to believe in lies, just to sort of start off here. Right. You know, it's interesting because moving on, I I always say moving on is an American concept. Yeah. The reason I said that was I was, you know, right after 9-11, I was so impressed that two months after 9-11, all the newspapers were talking about moving on. Yeah. Americans should move on. And, I mean, for me, that was quite incredible because, you know, I did not understand what moving on meant in that concept. This is your introduction to moving on. Yes. Yeah. And and so it's stuck with me. And of course, you know, Moran borrowed that concept or Moran said, you know, after 9-11, yeah. people talked about moving on. And but the national belief, you know, it's it's interesting because I think this Western concept of moving on, you know, there's always a second chance. There's always there are always more opportunities in front of you if you just, you know, get over this hurdle. 
Now it's becoming more an Asian thing.、Hmm. Only in the past maybe two or four years,、yeah. if you look at not only China but you know Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and, you know Singapore, all these countries start to believe. Moving on, we don't. We're not going to stay in any moment. We're just going to catch this wave of being. You know. You, you left out North Korea in that. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Oh、on? no! They can't. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, that's interesting because that's a belief that you know, as people are migrating, you know, from east to the west. Of course, you know, ideas are migrating from the west to the east, and of course, you know, also people coming to America are returning to Asia. So there are these, you know, waves of ideas. So now, if you look at Chinese or other Asian countries, the moving on is a big thing. It's a big theme. You know, we're not going to get stuck in cultural revolution. We're not going to get stuck in Tiananmen Square. We're just going to move on. You know, to do to be rich. Yeah, but the thing about moving on, I mean, it's used in two senses. You allude to this American impulse of yes, well, we can move on and have a second chance and start our life over. Uh, but there's also this idea of moving on as as if we have no sense of the past, that we have no collective memory or even individual memory. And I'm wondering, you know, if if it's increasingly becoming a way to identify the East and the West. I, I mean, you know, is it essentially、uh, a flawed notion, or is it is it is it a notion that one should essentially adopt and then、uh, discard because we get dangerously close into Believing in illusion, right? I always, I would feel, you know, suspicious of any belief. And again, as you said, moving on really requires us to say we're going to box this kind of memories.、Yeah. We're going to put them away so we can do something else. And of course, you know, as a novelist or as a writer, you always feel suspicious when those things happen because you're manipulating memories. Yeah, you're manipulating time. You're manipulating readers. Yes. So in a sense, you become an ideologue as well. Exactly. So, so I would say, you know, anytime someone says, you know, let's move on or let's look at history all the time, I would become suspicious because both ways are ways to manipulate readers or you know characters. So it's almost as if you have to dramatize belief culture to be an honest novelist. <laughs> would you say that's the case? Well, or I would say. To question that belief culture, yeah, and you know, I think when you question, there are many ways to question. You know, drama to dramatize is one way to question, and you know, I think, I mean, you write essays to I can write nonfiction to question these things, but as a fiction writer, you have to. I I I think I question the belief culture more than dramatize. How do you think fiction allows the reader to question belief culture more than nonfiction, or perhaps? In a way that nonfiction can't possibly do. I think it's different. They they do different things, and、uh, I think you know. For instance, if you're, I'm, I, I mean, I I'm not a experienced nonfiction writer.、Yeah. I do write nonfiction. I you could you could approach this question from the reader and the writer from right. that point too. I think for me, the most important thing as a fiction writer is you don't judge your characters. So if they're flawed in the belief culture, you let them be in that culture and do all the things, and so the readers can have can come to their own conclusions. In nonfiction, I feel that a writer needs to take a stand, probably more than a fiction writer. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of judging characters, I mean, you have three characters. 
Boyang, Ryu, and Moron, and to a lesser extent, Shaoi. Shalai. Shalai. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, great mystery I've been wanting to actually clear up. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, author. Um, I mean, with these characters, they are inhabiting their own particular mystery that is almost independent of the central mystery of the book. We come into this wanting to know how Shai, Shai, Shalai? Shalai. Shalai. How Shalai has been poisoned. And that particular mystery um, takes sort of a backseat to what? who are these characters? What are they? Who is the elusive first husband who we never actually get to know about? And that mystery becomes such a dominant part of the novel that when the initial mystery returns later on in the book, I felt a tremendous sense of shock. And, 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 I, and, I, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, in, in tackling this idea of judging characters from a, from a novelist standpoint or in my from my vantage point, from a reader's standpoint, whether the idea of that judgment being predicated upon simultaneous mysteries is enough to get us to inhabit a, a, a greater, uh, more salubrious truth about the world we live in. What do you think about this? You know, yeah, I, that's, a, that, that's a question that I need to think no problem. about. <laughs> I think, in, in a way, I think... Well, I can, you know, if you look at the novel, for instance. Yes. I think these three characters, they don't think of themselves as mysteries. They don't think of the poisoning as the only, th- I mean, even though it's the most important event in their lives. Yeah. They want to say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's past. I have moved on. So they have this wrong perceptions of their cell, their, their, their own, you know, lives. And... So I think the non-judgmental, you know, status or you know, view from an author is I'm going to let them, you know, stay in their eel logic. Yes. I'm going to let them carry out their lives in their eel logic. That was the mystery that allowed you to deepen their identity. Yes. Yeah. And then at one point they're going to find out. I mean, I think they're going to hit the wall by themselves. It's not that I push them upon the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. I, I read this and I had to wonder how much you thought about their fates and their histories in advance. I mean, Edward Jones amazingly works out every single detail of the story in advance. And I, and I had to wonder, especially with something as complicated as this one, if, if you had to do something similarly, if you had to hold such information, or I mean, or did, did their particular unfolding of their own mysteries al- allow you to have enough to kind of bounce off from. I mean, how much forethought was, was done for this novel? I think that forethought is, was the structure of the novel. So you did think everything out. I did not know every single detail yeah. out, but I knew at the beginning I had to figure out how to structure the novel. Ah. So I actually did two structures before this one, and both failed. What were those two structures? So the first one... You know, you know the novel. The story took place in 1989, 2010, yeah. and it's it's a, it's a, a very odd, you know, because there are two very big time points and it's two very heavy time moments in life. Yeah. So the first structure is past and present. It's you know, 89, and part two, present, but that had a problem. Like by the middle of the novel, you would know what happened with the poisoning. You would you would see that happening the whole poisoning happened and I thought you know even though this is not a mystery I still need to maintain that suspense for the readers 
So I scrapped that. So I did another one was past, present, and past. Mm-hmm. So you would see the past to the moment before the pres- the poisoning, and then we move to the present, and then to move to the past again to see the poisoning. But that I thought, I think the problem with that was you know, it's it's an artificial. I mean, all structures are artificial, but sure. that to me seems artificial that the the characters would have their understanding of the past, and then the readers go understand the past. Yeah. And I realized the readers and writers, I mean, sorry, the readers and the characters have to get to the moment to understand the poisoning at the same moment on the page. Yeah. So, so I redid the structure, you know, past, present, so alternating between past and present. So that's what you call the forethought. I really thought it for about it for two years before I started writing yeah. <laughs> to figure out the structure. So it seems to me that whereas William Burroughs essentially had to cut up all the, the entire manuscript, you actually had to cut up time. <laughs> this is basically naked clock. Yes, yes. And it, I'm so glad you talk about time because this is a book about time. You know, the, the biggest poison in the book is, yeah. is time for the three characters. And you really have to see how that poison, you know, works in 21 years. Yeah, yeah. But simultaneously, when one is caught up in the sense of wanting to know these characters, time itself disappears. I mean, there are a number of photographs throughout the book that are intended as a way to mark identity, which I find extraordinarily fascinating because, uh, and this is something I wanted to bring up with you, the fact that we don't really know what these characters look like. I, I, I thought that was fascinating. I, I, I was reading this book, and I was like, how the hell is Ian putting so much detail into this book? And then I realized, oh, oh, because she's not describing how these characters look like. And yet we also are aware of how they cling to these photographs, and they and this is basically their marker. This is the only thing they really seem to have uh, as, a, as a method of trying to negotiate this world and negotiate their identity. And I'm wondering, you know, how you arrived at the idea of not describing how they looked like, especially since, in many cases, how they look like is how they actually identify with other characters. Right, that's a, such a good observation because I didn't realize, I would say this is not intentional, I didn't yeah. realize I didn't describe their looks until I finished a novel. And someone pointed out, an early reader pointed out that Rui was a beautiful woman, but I never said that, and I never described yeah. her look. And I thought, well, yes. And I think the reason, you know, there are several reasons for that. One is I'm, I'm a very internal reader, I mean writer, and I'm an internal reader too. So if I read something, I don't visualize, and I really feel the internal landscape. So when I write, I write from the inside of characters. And I mean, I, I'm sure some people go over, you know, around in life thinking about how their face looks to other people. And I'm not one of those people. And my characters don't go through lives thinking about their own faces or their own bodies. So they don't see themselves. They probably see other people, but they don't see themselves. And, And I think in that way, I don't write from external, how they feel externally about themselves. And that actually opens up all this space to write about their, their internal feelings and thoughts. It's also, oddly enough, a mystery trope, because I, I was talking about this with Ian Rankin, and we were pointing out that 
we never actually know how Rebus looks like over the course of, mm. you know, 20 novels. Yes. And Rebus is still going strong. And, and that is such a fascinating way of not only getting inside the internal, but also using it as a way of, of how one's identity is reflected against society. And I mean, I'm wondering, you know, we should talk about the mystery influences upon this, mm-hmm. on, upon this because I, I feel that some of the more literary-minded, or rather the people who only read literary novels are kind of, and I read literary and genre, mm-hmm. are kind of missing out on the, on the mystery influences on this. And I, what, did, were, what did you take away from your mystery reading? I know Patricia Highsmith was something that you really wanted to actually emulate. And certainly at the end, oh my God, <laughs> do you? But, oh, yes. but I wanted to ask uh, you know, what you took away from, uh, from genre and how fusing that right. with, uh, with identity and with uh, that, this kind of care of, of, of dislocation in time led to this. Right. You know, I it's it's interesting because I'm not a big reader of genre fiction, but yeah. I love, you know, for, for instance, I really love Patricia Highsmith. And I read her, and then I read her biography, of course. Oh, she's a terrible <laughs> She's woman. a terrible She's woman. a terrible Fascinating. Woman. <laughs> Wouldn't want to meet her, but oh you know, my God. It's so I mean, interesting. It was a nightmare reading that biography in a good way, you yeah. know, a good nightmare. So <laughs> I thought, you know, for instance, I think she never really judges her characters. Well, yeah. she lets her characters care. I mean, Tom Ripley just goes, I'm killing, killing these people. And you almost feel that you are on his side. Yeah. And you know he's going to do it. And you don't care. You just want him to see how he does it, right? So, and all these, you know, manipulations, I think he's very manipulative. And I think these things, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, okay, I'm going to make a very g- general comment, which is bad, because I hate to make general comments. Well, we could get more specific about it. Okay. Lay it on me. <laughs> but I just feel that, you know, sometimes in literary fiction, we have this idea that we're going to, you know, leave everything unsaid, for instance, you yeah. know, in a way that we're going to describe the coffee or describe, you know, the dinner table, yeah. you know, the, the, I don't know, I feel that... We will describe every single object on the table for the tea party, but we won't actually get into the emotion sometimes. Yes, and I feel that, you know, for instance, I don't think Highsmith was ever afraid of describing, oh, this is what Tom thought, this was Tom felt, you know, Tom. So I, I feel that it's important to describe feelings and thoughts and in. I'm I'm going off the way. I don't know. No, no. I, I think what you're saying is, uh, and and we're gonna pro- we can continue to digress. I'm I love digressions, yeah. but um, you know, I think what you're saying is is you admired, I think, the freedom that is there in Highsmith to get inside the head of someone like Tom Ripley, while simultaneously here's someone who is so cold, so free, so able to actually do that. And, and this leads me to wonder, like, well, you know, you seem from from online dealings in our meetings to be a very uh, uh, good person. I'm making a judgment off of that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of, like, you know, evil stuff that you're capable of, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, what do you, is it, was it really freedom that you admired in Highsmith more than any other quality? And that this freedom is what seems to be sometimes lacking in the kind of stiff, descriptive literary fiction that we're identifying here, too? A little bit, yeah. I think freedom or the courage to yeah. write about a character so unlikable, you know, the, the character that, you know, we, what do we call this, this like, unlikable character, dislikable yeah. character? Yeah. I don't know. It's just someone who's... Getting inside the head of a sociopath. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. And I think, you know, just the courage to do that and to do that well, I just admire her for that. Yeah. And, and also the just... The, 
complexity within that mind. It's yeah. just fascinating. It's fascinating. Were, were you interested with this project in seeing how non-judgmental you can be as an author? Was this something you actually faced in The Vagrants or any of the stories or anything like that? That, that finally, I'm going to write a novel. I know what's going to happen, but I'm, I'm going to use time as the way of judging these mm. things. I'm not going to actually bring my own bias into these, even though I'm very familiar with these characters. I don't think I usually judge my characters. And although I would say this is probably the least judgmental book I've yeah. written so far, I think with the vagrants, because there is... there. There's a villain there. There's yeah. the history. The politics is the real villain in that book. So I didn't want to dwell upon the villain, but you could see that. And so the judgment is not mine, but it's already there. So Although you got, I, maybe you got a little close there with Celia, because I, I, I was laughing my, my, hysterically when she showed up for the first time. I'm like, oh my goodness, is she going to just turn this into a... Is this going to go into a satirical direction? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But in that book, I also had a few characters who, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the guy who was looking for a little young girl yes. to, yeah, to manipulate. <laughs> so... No, but this book, yes, I don't think there's a villain here. Yeah. And really, you know, I want to see how time works on these three characters. You know, I think they also, the three characters really, especially one of them, we're not going to give away yeah. the, the story, but there's this psychological violence people inflict upon each other yeah. as young people. And they can't even help themselves that's fascinating to me. And they can't see how making a particular decision on how, and how they express themselves will lead to decisions as an adult that are almost permanent. Yes. Yeah. And so in a way, I think they got, they really, you know, when you, when you asked me earlier about their fate, I think it's really their fate. The fate is, you know, they did something when they were younger without the ability to understand it. Yeah. And then that really scarred them yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, there's this interesting undercurrent of religion in this book that I found really interesting. You have these Catholics who are uh, practicing in secret. Through Ant, there's reference to a priest who was executed as a counter-revolutionary sometime around 1949 mm -hmm. by the new communist government. Uh, and with Ant, you mentioned Faith as something partially absorbed as a superstition by her, so she would never say no in her heart to the possibility of a deity from above. In contemporary fiction, we don't often associate this kind of religious faith with China. Um, how do you think it came to be part of China's identity in the last part of the 20th century and today? And do you find this kind of underground faith to be comparable to any kind of literary relationship? Yeah. You know, it's. I would say, you know, I've, I've always been in fascinated by religion because I did not grow up with a religion and I'm interested in how religions you know, how the whole religious system works, for instance. So I think, you know, China in the past 60 years, there there was, I mean, officially, it was not a religious country. It was, everything was gone, right? Communist, communism was the only belief. But I think there are all these religions, you, can, you, can, you cannot take belief away from people. Yeah. In a way, you know, it's like, they will they're going to turn into something else and that i think china in the as i know i i'm probably again generalizing i think that china as i know is the most superstitious country yeah maybe for that reason because there's no religion there's no way to you know express those feelings so everything is so 
it's the religion. It's it's superstition. And much of it is associated with death. As yes. Well. Yeah. Yes. Like for instance, you know, you cannot say four because four, you know, sounds like death. Yeah. You know who? I mean, we in English we say death all the time. In yeah. Chinese, we cannot say death. It's just terrible to say the word even. Yeah. Again, you know, that's to me it's interesting. And then other, you know, all these all these superstitious, you know, practices mostly I think come from. You know, not knowing if there's a life after death. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because we're talking about a belief that gets pushed to the underground as a much more homogenized belief. The ideology of communism is completely sweeping across China. And this is actually an interesting parallel to the the two mysteries I, I, I identified in an earlier question, that you have uh, the mystery of, of who poisoned who, replaced by the mystery of who are these people? What did they do? And it's almost as if in exploring an absolute, you're inevitably going to bifurcate it <laughs> and you're inevitably going to, to focus in on, on the sub-mystery or the sub-belief. And, and I'm wondering, you know, why, why you think that, that with this project, there was always this concern of yours, it seems, in finding, okay, we, we, we have our hands on the very clear, explicit example, but there, there's also this. Is it just a matter of just being... Um, uh, just a, a humanist who looks at the bigger picture, or is it possibly looking at the Highsmith idea of I will say anything and I will get inside any thought? You, and inevitably, you will just be drawn to this kind of thing. You will be drawn to the whole enchilada. Right. Oh, that's a good question. I would say a little bit of a both. Yeah. And I think for me, it's you know I I'm probably not as extreme as Patricia Highsmith, and I mean I admire her. In the, in I think you treat your dogs better. Oh yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know I I think I do I I guess especially with writing this book, it's uh, in general when I write, if I put down a sentence, I have to ask a question: Is that true? Yeah. Is that you know does that sentence sound? Right, not in not like grammatically, but is that even true? Not rhythmically necessarily. Although you have you told us in the previous conversation, you were mentioning how a lot of it's inside your head. But but part of that process of rhythm, part of that process of music, is also belief. Yeah. Is does it actually does it actually can I believe in this? Yes. Huh. So yes, I think with everything the characters say or do in this book, I would question them again. Yeah. Know? Are you able to say that in that moment? Uh-huh. And sometimes I think, okay, maybe not. But sometimes I, I would, you know, if I can convince myself, yes, the character is capable of doing this at that moment, and then I can write down. What was the toughest sentence where you had to convince yourself to put it on the page? Out of curiosity, is there any? I mean, that's a. I know that's a hard question, but is there any kind of point I would that was really difficult for you to like commit to? I would tell you. Okay. At the end of the novel, without naming a character, one character said to the other, "Go ahead and eat. Yeah. I did not put poison in your food." <laughs> when I, again, when it happened, I thought, "My goodness, that really <laughs> give me the chill." And but that's you know, again, I thought, you know, is that a sentence? That sentence didn't come from me. That dialogue came from this character, and yeah. she was capable. You know, this one was capable of doing that with also enjoying that effect of that sentence on another character. So that moment, I thought, oh, I will never forget that moment in my writing. <laughs> wow. 
So, I mean, is there any way, I mean, in your short stories, you still have this kind of filtering approach? Everything you write has the, the sort of like the thumbs up, thumbs down, can I actually write this? Yeah, I, I guess I, just in general, it's, I, mean, I guess in general, I question myself yeah. in everything I do, everything I say. So, yes, when I write short stories, I do that too, you huh. know. Have you tried to just basically write something without that that kind of approval process in place? Or? <laughs> it's very hard. Once it's in place, you would never be able to get rid yeah. of it. Yeah. I wanted to actually uh, talk about the notion of family in this novel. Um, it, it's this amorphous and organic idea, uh, sometimes elusive. I, I mentioned Ryu's uh, first husband, who we don't really know about. We see neighbors take care of others in the quadrangle. Uh, we have the two grand aunts who raise Ryu and send her to Beijing. And Ryu says at one point, I've heard people say that siblings from the same parents can have opposite temperaments. It is interesting that your characters seek this kind of temperamental conformity uh, within these heterogeneous elements. I'm wondering where your interest in the idea of the makeshift family in this sense originated from. Yeah, you know, I, I would say all fiction to me is about family. Yeah. You know, even if the family is absent, it's still about family. So, in this, I think with this novel especially, I think there's that family versus orphan. You yeah. know, there's one orphan and two other characters orphaned themselves in yeah. a way. You know, one orphan from the parents and the other orphaned, you know, herself from the country. And so, I, I, I like that you know, I, I think s something about family we both are drawn to and we both want to run away from, that dynamic is interesting. Uh -huh. so, so really the idea of finding some commonality in what you run away from, this is sort of the appeal. And this also gets back to the question of how these characters are identifying themselves internally. That that, that internal process involves some kind of, I mean, you gotta have some family even if you run away from it. Right. Yeah, Yeah. I, one question I asked myself was, you know, what if this poisoning had never happened? Mm -hmm. They would, the, all three characters maybe would, I mean, they would have some sort of family life, you know, whether it's good family life or bad family life. And I thought, you know, yes, they, they sort of, they decided they would not have that. Yeah. But then, you know, for instance, Moran came to America and he, she watched uh, Joseph's family. Again, that's a very typical American family at Thanksgiving. Yeah. And something about that moved her, but she knew she could not, she could never be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, there are also these mantras that flow throughout the book. Uh, there are these little maxims, they're like, little driftwood that float past the characters and they can't actually grab them as they're going through the air. Uh, bits of wisdom. Uh, to cite just one example, life is a battle that the lesser ones do not have the luxury of quitting midway. Uh, we see Moran looking for mottos in Buddhist books. Um, and at one point, Shaole says to Moran, since when did you turn yourself into a mouthpiece for the wise and the optimistic? Uh, how did this particular stylistic flourish develop, and why was it important to cement these ideas in wise and optimistic sayings? Right. I, I think with this novel, I, I, I think simultaneously, not only I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out the, the lives of the characters, I was also trying to figure out the questions they were, yeah. you know, asking themselves. So trying to find answers for myself for those questions. So I think probably a lot of thinking process came into writing the book. And I also thought, you know, sometimes you read a novel, you know, 
I mean, you can read a perfectly well-written novel, and I just feel that you just want one more thing. Yeah. And what is that one more thing? And and then I just thought, oh, you know, if you read, for instance, it is a Bowen, there are often things that she said had nothing to do with the story. Yes. Those lines just would kill you in yeah. a way. <laughs> and I thought I, it's and that's in the death of the heart, especially. It's just one of those books. In fact, it's really odd because I was at a Facebook uh, volley over the death of the heart as well oh. recently, and I just was going back to it, cause, and I was saying, my God, every time I think of that book, I think of being crushed by the sentiments while simultaneously enamored with the beauty, you yes, know? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Um, But maybe it's this quest for the internal that, that had you possibly looking at the maxims or the or these little homilies that sort yeah, of you know, yeah. interspersed. I, yeah, I think this is also, if you compare this with, you know... For instance, the vagrants. This yeah. is definitely more internal novel. It's really everything is about the psychology and yeah. you know the internal. So, so I think, yeah, you have to, once you are inside the characters. Really, again, you know, when we think, we don't think in scenes, right? We don't think with you know with moments, or we don't think about coffee cup. We're we're th- we're holding a coffee cup and thinking about something else. Yeah, and I think I guess I'm just bypassing the coffee cup and co- coffee cup and just writing about the thoughts maybe and this this occurs to me just now that maybe you were trying to figure out a way to be as subtle as possible about alerting the reader that you are in, inside another person's head get outside of your own head I'm going to startle you as much as possible so that you actually are in someone who you never would have expected to be inside but I'm going to also do it in a way that's subtle so that the shock itself is muted. Was was this kind of an interest of yours or anything? Or? I, I never... That's interesting because I've never thought about it, but I know that I never want to shock my yeah, yeah. readers. I, I guess I'm just... Either I'm not good at shocking people, or I'm. Or I'm the not shock should in. should be like an undercurrent, as yeah. opposed to here, I'm going to hammer you over the head. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think like poison. So you know, coming back to poison, poison yeah. is very passive aggressive. You know, it works <laughs> it on you. The it way is. that a gunshot's really swift. You yeah. Know? Just, hey. you, yeah. So so that writing is the same thing. You can you know you can hammer someone's head, and this person can feel the pain, but you can also put the poison in reading. And <laughs> <laughs> are you suggesting, Ian, that uh, poison was your muse here? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly did a lot of research on poison. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. did. Did you? Uh huh. How much research did you? I mean, is, is it helpful in other areas? Or <laughs> I mean, I did some chemical. I mean, I I yeah. have science background. Uh, I, know, I, read. I know. Chemistry paper. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, since since there's an accordion that figures prominently into this, do you play accordion at all? Or I do. You do? Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. I. How how can how can we? Um, do you play this no, only inside your own home? Okay. Or? You know what? Actually, I I shouldn't say I do. I used to play. You used I to still play. I still have the accordion. But okay. I probably. When did you give it up? Well, why did Rui give up? <laughs> Well, that's true, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, I would love to see you play accordion because here in the states, I think we're in an accordion crisis right now. There aren't a number of there aren't accordion players who are replacing the great sort of polka players right. from, the, from the four. And I right. think maybe you could bring some accordion. There you go. I don't, anyway, I, I was I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah. um, there's one moment where. Shaele is asking Ruyu what she thinks of her friend Yuning, uh, Yining. Mm-hmm. And Ruyu responds, why do you need my opinion? 
Uh, this leads Shaeli to say to Ryu, I find your lack of interest in anything but your own little faith to be more than horrifying. Now, you know what? This is just too close to Darth Vader saying, I find your lack of faith disturbing in Star Wars. Oh. And I had to ask, you didn't know that? I did not know that. Okay, I thought you were riffing off of, like, you know, cultural maxims in some way. Oh, no, oh. I did not know that. Yeah, there's this, yeah it's, it's in the okay. original Star Wars. It's right before Darth Vader's about really? to, like, cho- choke the guy with his magic power, you know, with the Force. Okay, I don't okay. watch TV and I don't watch okay. movies. I didn't, so. I didn't know. Well, I mean... So I don't know Star Wars. This leads me then to ask you about like okay, so so for a lot of these these like little mantras and maxims throughout the book, did you consult any other texts or did you was this part of the approval process inside your head to I mean did you style a lot of these things or did you actually pull them or riff off of other things? No, they're mostly from me, okay. except wow. a couple I said from Buddhist yeah. script. Those I especially said, you know, they came from Buddhist script. Otherwise I just I just sit there and you know, I would sit there and think about things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so when did they actually come into the book, this particular stylistic uh, part of it? I mean, uh, when did you know that this had to be that, that one thing that was missing you needed to include, out of curiosity? I think very early on, in the first draft, I realized, you know, I I really wanted to, you know, write about the thoughts that not only were relevant to the characters at that moment but also to the readers for yeah. instance or to other people yeah so there's this moment where uh, moran is sitting in the classroom and daydreaming and the teacher asks her to provide an answer to a question and boyang whispers bok choy just behind her ear and moran basically says bok choy and then riffs off of this by saying sugar rice flour cooking oil and the teacher uses this as to continue with the lecture uh, and it's this moment that sort of reveals that political ideology is going to absorb anything. And, and I'm wondering, you know, um, in light of the fact that I've identified a few of the little maxims, there's also the, and, and how we talked earlier about the idea that the true villain of the vagrants was, in fact, the ideology. Um, you know, this idea of ideology absorbing everything, I mean, how, how did, I, in, in this particular way, it, it, it's almost as if the imagination doesn't have any way, any any free place separate of ideology to operate out of. And, I, and I'm wondering um, how, you, how, you, how this became such an indelible part of these, of these characters. Right, because these characters, you know, if I, again, I think it's possibly, it's not possible for anyone to live outside politics or yeah. history in any country. But in China or in North Korea, it's probably especially hard. So yes. as you say, everything is, you know, saturated with these politics and ideology. So I was really just writing 1989. And what happened in that moment is, you know, we're still very big on, you know, the social, econo- social economy or, you know, socialized I know, planned economy. That's what we were learning about in middle school, high school. It's all about planned economy and how that was good. And of course, you know, writing from 2010, 2011, it was ironic, you know, who would have understood planned economy at this moment? So, but for these characters at that moment, it was their life. Everything was a planned economy. (laughs) Well, it's also interesting because you also have this allusion to do not talk about politics, the sign that is placed on the wall of every single tea house. And that notion of uh, the political and the personal being ineluctably intertwined is fascinating because, and I talked about this recently with Dean Amengestu, and I'm hoping maybe get your thoughts on this. American life tries to bifurcate for the 
personal and the political. Um, you know, what did you what did you make of these sort of personal and political discussions when you came to America and when you started to sort of see some of the weird prohibitions in American literature, especially about do not talk about politics in novels, because even though you can talk about, you can write about politics in literature, as long as you're not didactic and as long as you're not on a soapbox, you're going to be okay. And yet there's kind of a weird diffidence in this. I mean, you know, so what are your thoughts on this? So funny. I think someone probably, I, I, I think in general, okay, Again, I'm generalizing. Every time okay. I generalize... Right. Well, we'll, we'll see I, if we can unpack this stuff. Yeah, every time I generalize, I feel a little... I like these provisos. <laughs> <laughs> you can clearly see I question myself all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think, in general, American writers tend to be careful and polite when they write about certain subjects. Yeah. And so this is... I was thinking about, for instance, one of the, the best stories written in 20th century is... James McPherson, my yeah. mentor, James Adam McPherson, wrote this story about this man coming into this, I think it's called the emergency room, I think, and he, he came in, you know, he started just ranting to, I mean, about this woman who was beaten, I mean, two African-Americans yeah. sitting there, you know, talking about how she was beaten by her boyfriend. And I thought, you know, that, that amount of you know, the, other, the young man saying to the woman, why would you, you know, put up with this? And these things, really just the courage to get down to the really, the basic, you know, human condition. I feel that people now seem to be really careful about writing those stories. Hmm. And I don't know. I mean, why, why, do you why, do you think, why do you think that is? Why do you think people are being a little, playing it a little too safe? Well. At the risk of generalizing. <laughs> at the risk of generalizing. I think people in general, want to be on the right side. Yeah. <laughs> and they're afraid of being on the wrong side if unless they have the confidence to say, I just want this position. Also, I think people want to belong. Yeah. And, I mean, if you sing along with other people, I just imagine, you know, because I came from a background, we always would sing in chorus, you know, propaganda chorus. But once you are in the chorus... <laughs> You are you belong to something that is you know you don't have to have your individual voice you know disagreeing with that chorus. Propaganda courses do not need to be sanctioned by a government in order to exist, as we see, I think, in some digital circles. Yes. So so I I think people in general want to belong, and so I don't know. In I, it's it's probably every. It's it's probably it happens everywhere. I think you know Americans. Yeah. Although I would say Americans are much more tactical about these things. If I I don't know if you go to Europe, people yeah. really have, people really make racial comments so unawaredly that yeah. to me that's also interesting that they could. Can you hear that? Someone just said this, and yeah. nobody would really re react. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think that maybe one of the ways around this to get people to be less self-aware of their communications, I mean, from a storytelling standpoint, is just to really create, as I think you have with this, a baroque tale in which everything is intertwined, nothing can be cut out, or you can't, I mean, this is not a novel where I, I could just come in with the exacto knife and like a mad scientist fling the guts around. Everything is, is connected to everything, and, I, and I'm wondering if, if there is going to be a solution to this problem from storytelling? Is, is it just going to have to be dense, uh, 
complicated storytelling like this, or is it? I mean, you know, what do you, what do you think? It doesn't necessarily, or doesn't have to be those dense, you know, complicated yeah. storytelling. I think or contains, so, uh, can, yeah, yeah. In a way, I feel that I I think if a if a writer, you know, for instance, I have just been thinking who would be the. I mean, I'm thinking who's the writer. I would make. As use an ex- example, okay, if you look at a William Travers story, yeah. you know, the story itself is clearly, you know, very clear and clean written. Yeah. But, but every character is so complex, and he understands everybody's feelings. But if you put them together, they just, they just work against each other, and it just runs your guts that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, it does. I mean, you know, because weirdly enough, I, I. I was reading your book, and, and I, I, I said, you know, if this was, if this had not come from your background as, as, a, as a as a Chinese American, it actually would have come from the South, because the so- Southern writing is very much rooted in this yeah. idea of everything intertwined with everything, and there's also a kind of freedom in, in what is said in that literature, which is why I mean, which and, and Southern writing, despite all of our efforts to identify, you know, it, it just it continues to just be sort of. I think dismissed when, in fact, most of our great writers here in America, you know, involve the South. Twain, Faulkner, everyone, and so maybe we're maybe what we should be thinking about in, in terms of storytelling is is a kind of new South that is not necessarily limited to the South, but that actually understands that kind of natural trajectory of of how uh, these stories were formed. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because. You know, you know, William Trevor is a big influence. I know. Yeah, yeah, you're, so, you're like a William Trevor fan. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> But when I met him, and you know, we started to talk about, you know, yeah. his influence. You know, you would think he was from Ireland, right? So yeah. he said, you know, he said, when I was younger, I really loved Carson McCullers. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it made, the, the, yes. the, it made a circle because when I was in grad school, my professor, Elizabeth McCracken, you know, she taught me a couple of times. When she read my manuscript, she said, oh, you have to read, you know. Carson McCullers. So I thought, well, you know, we we always say we say our literary, you know, or like nationality or you know ethnicity. But really, if you look at the literature, literary in heritage, you know, who knows where we get our in, in heritage? Yes. Yeah. So I like that idea, you know, New huh. South. <laughs> yeah, New South. Well, it, it, there actually is a New South thing. Uh, but but this does lead me to wonder. I mean, you know, but on the other hand, uh, maybe uh, region is something that. Uh, it's not so much region as it is a feel. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm overstating the idea that there should, you know, of, of there actually being a regional assignation to literature as opposed to a, a feel. I mean, you know, I, and and certainly with this book, even though I, I get the sense I'm in either two college towns or I'm in China or Beijing, and also, you know, the the details you select in Beijing are very, you know, like for example, the people huddling. Uh, beneath the shade to escape the sunshine. I mean, you know, th- that allows me to live in it. But at the same time, the liminal space of your book is such that I, I could be in either America or China because I'm bouncing around in time. Uh, you know, do you think that um, that that places possibly overly assigned in, in, in literature as well? That's such a good question because I feel that ever since I started writing, you know, I, f- I felt, you know, in grad school or even just everywhere I turned, people would say, you know, writing is about place. Yeah. <laughs> and that always mystified me a little bit, I think. I don't understand that saying. Maybe you can explain to me. I think, I know I understand what people are saying, you know, writing is all about the sense of place. You have to give a sense of place. Yeah. But 
on the other hand, you know, I don't know. I feel that the internal landscape probably is very similar if you live in America or or China. You know, the the despair I feel and the despair you feel have sometimes have nothing to do with sense of place. Yeah, it's really, it's internal. It's internal. Yeah. So. I, so I'm sometimes I am you know mystified by these th- things and maybe I don't really write with a strong sense of place because maybe I'm not interested in it. Or, or maybe what's going on here is that readers are assigning a sense of place because you're going into a, a feeling or a thought that would most people wouldn't actually bother to actually get to yet. Maybe this is the, this is this is what we're talking about in terms of feel as feel and time is that are actually the more common ground than, than place. Yeah, yeah, I I think I exactly I think feelings and times are what I'm interested in. You know, I do think you know I when I when I was writing about Beijing that Beijing was no, no longer there. Yeah, and I said, oh, I'm going to write this love letter to the city I grew up, and it was a love letter. But yeah. But it really didn't. I mean, still, I don't think the sense of the place or the place is the most important thing. We know that you know Joyce had to go to Trieste in order to write about Dublin. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if if something has to be completely dead. Place has to be dead in order for you to recreate it in a way where you know it's 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 almost entirely fictional. It's it's your memories coming alive. I mean, has, has that been the case for you? Would you say? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Especially with Beijing. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good place to end. Ian, it was a pleasure to chat. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. (laughs) Okay.